Hi everyone, it's Cam here. A bit of a content warning for this episode. We talk about depression, self-harm and suicide in this one. If that doesn't sound like a safe range of topics for you, you might consider skipping this episode. If you need help or someone you know needs help, there is help out there for you. So please, please reach out. There are many support options available to you and they're all just a message, web search or phone call away. Among these options, there's Lifeline on 13 11 14, or in an emergency, please call 000. If you decide to skip this one, we'd like to thank you for your support all the same and thank all of our wonderful listeners. Your kind words of encouragement mean so much to us and to our amazing guests. On with the episode. And thank you for listening again to the Veterinary Kaleidoscope, the number two pet and animal podcast on Apple Podcasts Australia. Um, So my name is Kate. I'm a clinical veterinarian in practice in Batemans Bay, New South Wales, and I am a trans woman. And I'm Cam. I am a veterinarian and PhD researcher, and I'm a Palawar man. So today we've actually got as a guest Professor Darren Trott. And I think if I read his bio for his academic achievements, I think we will use up the entire one-hour episode. <laughs> um, so because they are they are quite marked and significant. And I think that we will probably leave that for up to him to introduce himself more properly a little bit later, but welcome to the Veterinary Kaleidoscope, Darren. Thanks very much. Um, And I'm joined uh, today by my beautiful soulmate and and life partner for the last 35 years, Janelle, just to support us along and um, and to uh, keep the conversation going. So thanks very much, Janelle. Thank you indeed. And thank you, Janelle, for joining us. Nice to meet you. Mm. You too. So we usually, our usual start off, what have we been up to and what have we got planned going forward? Do you want to go first, Kim? Sure. Well, I'm back back at work, back at the PhD after a bit of time off, trying to work out what's, <laughs> what's happening in the world. I'm uh, trying my hardest to, to get up to do some follow-up field work up in the Torres Strait Islands, but given the... 1700 cases of COVID that we've had in Melbourne today, it's not looking good. And obviously community safety comes first, um, even though I'm already fully vaccinated. Yeah, have to try to work out the the best and and safest way to to get up there if that's doable. Um, So whether that means hotel quarantine or trying to work with somebody else to, to get up there. Just logistics has been a huge spanner in the works last 18 months so it's a whole other set of skills that I didn't really think would come into play in this PhD but has been a pretty pretty major part yeah that's yeah absolutely it's 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 huge and it's I think it's thrown a spanner into everyone's works hasn't it and Mm. particularly when um the work sort of crosses state State, ter- state boundaries and stuff like that, yeah. and even international boundaries. Uh, it's it's been super challenging, and so I did read the seventeen hundred cases. So I'm feeling for you, mate. Like I'm oh, feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so Dar- Darren's nodding his head. Like in yeah. South Australia, Darren's nodding his head, going, "Yeah, that sounds bad. That sounds bad. We'll just go down the pub after this." Um, <laughs> We, we have just been so lucky in South Australia. It really comes down to luck in, in many ways. So, yeah, but um, it's not all over yet, but we're, we're getting closer and closer every day. So, uh, we, yeah, we all look forward to that uh, day when state boundaries open up and we can catch up with family and friends. And, and, and you know, I really sympathise with Cam in terms of being able to do that work um, interstate and things like that. But it will happen and, and you have learned an amazing set of skills in dealing with... Uh, <laughs> with all of these contingencies and problems, um, you know, so far. Yeah. What have you been up to, Kate? 
Uh, well, uh, I had a birthday, so I got old. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm 49 now. Yeah, you laugh. Oh, you little... Big one next year. Oh, no, right? This the, the Gen Y is laughing at me, everyone. <laughs> so, but, um, or are you a millennial, Cam? Are you Gen Y or millennial? Like, I don't know. Gen... I get confused with all those yeah. things. I don't know where oh, one ends and the next well. begins. I don't, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, I actually genuinely thought, you know, back in turning 49 and the Veterinary Kaleidoscope being number two podcast, I thought, oh, that'd be the sort of, that's like the highlight of of things in my week. And then, then the Premier resigned, then the Deputy Premier resigned, then my local member resigned. Um, so it's just <laughs> like, it's like uh, I, I think I'm sort of in a similar boat to you, Cam. It's like, I, I, like I've got no idea what the hell's going on in the world. Like, yeah. It could, like, yeah, it's hard to keep up, isn't it? Oh, absolutely sort of bonkers. So, mm. um, so yeah, but uh, for been planning and preparing for this, done a little bit of backgrounding. So I've been trying to learn about mental health and bipolar in particular. Um, so listened to a couple of podcasts. So I wasn't sort of completely out of it, trying also not to... Um, uh, try not to sort of place any uh, expectations or what I've heard on onto sort of Father Darren's experiences sort of uh, there, but I just wanted to try and make sure I had my head around some of the words and the language sort of thing um, uh, as far as that goes. But yeah, so very much looking forward to hearing, hearing from Darren. Hmm. And so what have you got to, Darren and Janelle? So, um, yeah, this is a very busy time in the um, university calendar. Um, Janelle and I sort of both um, uh, work with our clinical research project students. They're in the fourth year of the, um, uh, the six-year vet program at Adelaide, and uh, they all have to do a research project. So it's sort of a bit, a bit like herding cats, uh, trying to get them through to the finish line. Mm. We've both had uh, two wonderful weeks of, of breakaway during the two-week break, which um, we we first time we actually took uh, time out at this time of the year, and I think we're going to do it every year. It was just great to recharge and mm. come back, and we're hitting the finish line now. We just have to get them all through, get all of their manuscripts submitted, and then the, the big research day where they present their research findings, and boom, and then you know try to get that out of the way so it doesn't sort of become their all-encompassing sort of program because they've got three other subjects to, to study mm-hmm. for as well. So just, just sort of herding and shepherding through, um, try to identify any of the problems and make sure that we don't get hit with big problems right at the end that we should have been sort of solving a little earlier on. So, yeah, that's very, very busy. Um, and then hoping over the summer um, we'll do more of our work on our, on our orchard and um, our little bed and breakfast where building away here in the Barossa Valley. So at one time when we retire from university to, to take up um, a, a, a new career. So that's uh, that's what our plans are sort of in the future as well. That sounds fantastic. I look forward to um, coming to the Barossa and, and checking it out sometime in the future. It sounds absolutely amazing. You are both more than welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll both be trust me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I do not need a second invitation to go to the no, browser, that's for absolutely. sure. Absolutely. So we might start things off maybe just telling us a bit about yourself, your life, what, what led you to vet medicine, and what's made up your vet career thus far. Yeah, so uh, we both grew up in Perth in Western Australia, so um, I'm a Murdoch grad. Um, I just looked at the veterinary program in high school. I always loved animals, uh, wildlife, endangered species, the whole the whole sort of area, and and thought I had an affinity with animals. And I just saw all the courses that were there, and they all seemed to be things I was really really interested in. Totally loved the course. Um, had a few hiccups along the way. Um, my 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 mother died when I was sixteen, and my sorry, my father died when I was sixteen, and my mother about a year and a half later. So I sort of went through the majority of university, um, you know, without parents, which was a challenge. But, you know, there are many other people with, with, with worse challenges than that, um, you know, particularly doing the course um, that I've come across. I um, was very lucky that um, I met uh, Janelle just a, a month before my mother passed away. And um, that's sort of when I went back to see her again, that plucked up the courage to sort of 
hey, well, I've got nothing to lose. And and we've basically been together ever since. So that's about 35 years now. Wow. And um, I was always going to be a mixed animal practice veterinarian. Um, but um, uh, right the way through to fifth year, um, number one, I was completely crap at pregnancy diagnosis in cattle. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I nearly failed that. I have no idea, you know, it's, it's a bit of that, that spatial intelligence that we're talking about, about, you know, building and renovating, you know, Janelle's brilliant at it, I'm terrible at it, but I'm trying to learn. So I suddenly realised, well, that's a big part of mixed animal practice. And then I remember I had to remove a, an eye from a, 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 a dairy cow as well. Uh, sorry, sorry, from a Hereford um, um, in, in uh, rotation. And I thought I'd really love it, and I, I didn't. And I was trying to think, what? geez, I, I like this course. What can I find that, that's there? And that's when I happened to be doing a bit of independent research um, in the public health area. And everybody sort of shunned public health back, back in those days. You know, we were all going to be practice veterinarians. Still are. Yes. <laughs> I was looking at listeria in ready-to-eat foods. And we were doing surveys of foods in Perth at the time. And we found a, a huge amount of pate had the, uh, had the bacteria in it. And we contacted the WA Health Department. We were right in the middle of a perinatal listeriosis outbreak. And I just, I just found my little niche in that. I just thought, oh, this is fantastic. Um, so I continued on with a year of honours uh, whilst I still worked in practice. So I worked in practice for about eight years. But over that time, I just kept on doing more uh, bacteria-related projects, did a PhD where we got to travel um, internationally to the US and also up in Papua New Guinea. I worked up there for a while and totally loved that aspect. And I had to make that decision. Yeah, I, I loved practice. I was in small animal practice, but, um, but this is really where I want to go. And so we headed back to America for three years. And then uh, jobs came up in Australia, first at the University of Queensland, and then here at the University of Adelaide when we started the vet school. And so um, we both came down here for the interview. Um, we drove through the Barossa Valley and we just totally fell in love with the whole place. And so, you know, the rest is sort of history. So, yeah, I've, uh, I've taught microbiology to vet science students at the University of Queensland in Adelaide. And I've also done research in the area. And I, I've just found university was a bit of a, um, it, it was my happy place, you know, um, I do a lot of real-world stuff, but I just love the the aspect of learning and research and writing and scholarship. But I had a lot of hang-ups as a as an early career researcher. I had a lot of self self-esteem issues as well. So it took a long time for me to feel that I I had the credentials not just to teach but also to do research. Yeah, imposter syndrome, hey? <laughs> yes, I think we all have that in some respect mm. here. But, uh, yeah, but, uh, I think we yeah. sort of we need to do an entire podcast just on imposter syndrome, Ken. <laughs> an entire episode. Yeah. Oh, gee, I don't know if I'm experienced enough to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Where does it end? Do you feel like there's been a bit of a shift in terms of the acceptability of non-clinical routes for new graduates since you had those those sorts of feelings upon graduation? Yeah, um, I think I think the graduates that we're, you know, getting at the moment, uh, I mean, I also say to all of our graduates, you know, go out into debt practice, get, get those skills and experience, even if you want to do a different career, because you'll learn to deal with a lot of situations. For example, I did feel I was quite deficient um, in teaching and research because I didn't do large animal work, and I always felt uncomfortable teaching that area until I started doing some research in that area. So, yeah, but I, I, think, our, I think our graduates, um, you know, are open to a whole variety of careers that are out there now. And if we continue putting them on there, you know, we, it's, it's clear, uh, you know, we need more veterinarians in clinical practice, uh, but we need veterinarians in all aspects of life. I, I think going forward, particularly the, um, the issues with climate change, the issues with biodiversity uh, with with everything there you know I think vets are going to be a, a very important part of the solutions to many of those problems as well as being you know that those amazing people in practice that that don't just heal animals but, but heal people through through healing animals so yeah I, I think we have a, a privileged place in society but it also places a, a bit of pressure on us too it's it's interesting because I, I 
been exploring this a little bit, and Tara has actually been exploring this a little bit lately. She actually works, um, only works part-time clinically. Um, I say only, sorry. She works part-time clinically uh, and does a lot of, was doing a lot of work with the AVA in organising continuing education and, and sort of, uh, and that sort of type of thing. And uh, I just actually put a post up and actually asked for submissions. I'm going to ask you for a submission definitely too, Darren, um, for a project called that I'm calling Assigned Clinical Veterinarian at Graduation because I, I, have, I have concerns that there's a lot of push to sort of from business owners and, and clinical vets and uh, practices out there to, for universities to produce these clinical day one competencies, uh, which I'm not a massive fan of. Uh, I've, uh, I see certain elements, but I'm not a big fan of the overall thing of drop a, drop a new grad in and suddenly they do spays or whatever. Like it's, uh, I just don't see that. And I'm also a huge fan of like exploring your career as you go through it. And just because you started working clinical veterinary practice doesn't mean that you, like you, Darren, can't go into research or it also doesn't mean that at some stage in the future, you may decide to go and do something else. But I know, Cam, you sort of started in clinical practice and mm. then went to uh, PhD research. You are interested in teaching. Uh, you're also doing still some clinical work with the, with mm. the field work here, there. And the assigned clinical veterinarian graduation comes as a bit of a ripoff of assigned male at birth the you know this this idea that there's a fixed thing that you are and sort of and that has to be for the rest of your life and so that was where that came from but I yeah I I really love I love the idea of exploring that you know we we do have to remember that we're graduating veterinary scientists so um you know and scientists make very good clinicians because they're evaluating clinical evidence and uh, I think to pigeonhole Everybody has, oh, you know, 80% of you will work in companion animal practice uh, for the rest of your lives it is, is a little bit limiting. Um, and really, you know, the world is your oyster as a veterinary science graduate and you, you can pursue whatever career you want. Um, and there's not very many barriers in the way. I mean, there's a lot of competition in certain areas, but, but people are going to achieve that. Uh, you know, um, as I said at the start, there's, there's going to be a lot more positions in the future, as we as we get to the brink of of, uh, of species survival uh, on this planet, uh, there's going to be a lot more work for vets in in the wildlife area, in the one health area. You know, the sort of work that you're doing for your PhD cam, I think, um, is uh, you know, and we're only just getting into this whole one health thing and what it truly means. You know, uh, from that and 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 training people that that can cover, you know, environment, um, animal, and and um, sort of medicine together. Yeah, it's an amazingly diverse profession, isn't it? I remember some really great advice that I received when I first got my letter of offer to study vet. I was a year into a science degree and was actually really into genetics um, and pursuing biology. And when I got the offer, I felt really quite quite torn. But then through family contacts, I uh, was really fortunate to speak to Julie Strauss from AVBC, who told me that by studying vet, I really wouldn't be closing any doors, that I could continue studying genetics or zoology or whatever I liked, but I could do so much more. And mm. um, I think that served me really well. So um, that's sort of something that I've passed on to a few people since. Um, so I'm, yeah, very grateful for that, that advice at that really critical time. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you say, Darren, that One Health is like it's the trendy word at the moment, isn't it? Or been trendy for a few years. But uh, I actually noticed I sort of I did some backgrounding on you, Darren. Um, and <laughs> I, <laughs> I know, right? This is like I actually researched for this for this podcast. I just I like the listeners to know. Like I'm not just sort of I haven't just done this one off the cuff. I've actually researched for this one. Um, but I noticed back in 2014, actually, an interview that you did with the ABC, and you actually talked about the concept of One Health back then. Uh, you probably don't remember it, but it was it wasn't quite. It was almost a 
not quite a throwaway line, but it was sort of, uh, it was definitely, it was sort of there and that idea of, of blending. It was to do with antimicrobial resistance in, uh, I think it was cattle and, and whatever, and I, and I think at the time it was setting up an antimicrobial resistance survey network, I, I think at the time. It was, uh, was an interview with Catalyst, I think, uh, or no, Robin Williams, The Science Show. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it was a follow-on from an article that appeared in the conversation uh, back in 2014, uh, which, to be honest, in 2014, I don't have a lot of memories of, so I don't blame you if you don't remember much of 2014. Yeah, I, I think what it was at the time was that um, um, people were saying a lot of things about antibiotic use in animals and its impact to human health that that didn't have a lot of evidence for it. Um, and so we, we set about sort of generating some of that evidence um, and we've sort of been working through that and, and through that process, um, you know, getting getting veterinarians sort of more up to speed with, with their antimicrobials and their, their usage patterns and, and their, their, you know, their sort of prudent use guidelines. So, uh, yeah, we went ahead and did that survey. It was um, sponsored by Zoetis. Um, and we generated some great um, data, Australia-wide data, on on AMR in in companion animals as well as as livestock. So yeah, it was really, uh, and that was sort of about that time we just finished the survey, and it's sort of been the subject of several PhDs and, and lots of papers, which has been great to do. But uh, without the support of Zoetis at the time, uh, it wasn't going ahead. Yeah, every so often a drug company does actually do good, people. So sort of <laughs> when you hear us bag them out sometimes and you're constantly bagging them out on Facebook, sometimes they do good, all right? Yeah, and that, that for me is part of the process of bringing everybody to the table. You know, I've had nothing but great support uh, from the pharmaceutical companies in terms of in terms of what we do, uh, and we've I've worked with just about every one of them. So, you know, um it's sort of that, that reaching out and, and making sure everyone, everyone has a seat at the table because AMR is too important a problem not to not to invite everybody to to, to have their uh, their viewpoints on it. So we might jump into our next topic. So you've been very open with with us, Darren. So maybe you could start by telling us about when you received your diagnosis and and how that felt. Yeah. So. You know, and I've always been very open about uh, my bipolar with with our colleagues, um, uh, but particularly uh, with our students. So, um, you know, uh, ever since I was diagnosed and uh, what happened to me to get to that diagnosis was was very, very public. And maybe I could start by saying that um, I had my first episode of depression um, when I was about 25. And we all thought at the time it was sort of, you know, repressed or, uh, grief that I, because I sort of went on with my life quite quite quickly after my parents passed away, and uh, as I said, I was very lucky enough to meet my life partner, you know, um, during that time, and uh, and you know, it was a tremendous support for me. But then, boom, you know, depression reared its ugly head. And for any listeners that that have experienced depression, you know, that they'll know a the, the physical pain, and b um, you know. J.K. Rowling was really right in describing it uh, as a dementia, something that sucks your soul out, something that that it's like your fuse is gone and, and all you can see is, is life through this veil of, of negativity. Um, I was treated for that, and but I was we were very young and I think depression gets worse the older you get when you don't really deal with it. And boom, we went to America. That's probably where... The bipolar side of me, that the side that I thought was my normal, um, you know, kicked in because with bipolar, um, you can achieve, you have tremendous energy, you have plenty of ideas and creativity, and America was was just that area where we could really shine in that in that area. So yeah, I think that was good, but um, but I certainly had a few depressive like issues there during the cold winter and things like that. And I also felt that I wasn't a very good researcher, actually. Um, that, um, and it was more that I just wasn't that A-grade type of researcher that really goes down to find the nitty-gritty behind a problem. What I've realised later in life is I'm more of a, a, a dot joiner. I, I love to bring the various parts together. And that's where, you know, I said about self-esteem, that's where I felt a lot more 
sort of confidence is, is actually bringing teams together and, and trying to solve big problems and knowing enough about a little bit of areas that, to make it happen. But uh, so, yeah, we were at, in Queensland. Um, it was a difficult situation. Um, and yeah, I had, uh, I had another episode of depression and I, I made a very rapid response uh, to that from the antidepressants, but they really were not the sort of thing that, that I should have had as, a, as actually a bipolar. And, you know, it often takes a number of times to actually diagnose a bipolar person because usually when they, when they see professionals, they're in the depths of a depression and they, you sort of feel that your bipolar nature is actually what's, what's normal. So I um, went through a, a rapid rise and then I just went into the stratosphere and then I had a terrible collapse and I actually had a suicide attempt during that time and that may seem really tough and how could it happen? But I can tell you in the mind of, of a depressed individual, number one, it's, it, it just dominates and as a solution to fixing all the problems, including you don't want your loved ones to actually have to deal with you anymore that's that, that you know it's this horrible sort of um uh in indwelling area where where it's just boom you know and so i'm really really lucky to be here today uh, a thought saved me and you know i know many of my colleagues have been in a similar situation and haven't been as lucky as me and i think if we can just reach out and be with people and particularly be open enough to say when we have suicidal thoughts you know, you then have this horrible fear about going into mental hospital. What's it going to be like? Is it one one for over the cookies nest? And all I could think about when when I, you know, when my mind made the choice that I'm not, I'm going to stay on this planet, which is the best choice I could ever made. And and you know, the unbelievable hurt that uh, I would have caused my family, Janelle. You know, we're still dealing with the uh, the trauma of, of what happened with that area, but we're trying to do it in a way that will reach out to people and say, hey, you know, there's help. Um, and that was, you know, it's like a stained glass window just smashed and all the little pieces of my life were there. And something in me said, I need help. And I just started to take that first step forward. And that's when I was uh, in hospital. Uh, I had great support from my work. And I was in, I had amazing support from Janelle. She came to see me every day. She never believed I wouldn't get better. Uh, but I was three months um, in there, um, uh, and that's when my doctor and I tweaked, ah, there's something more to this, um, and uh, he tried me on a mood stabiliser. I mean, for, for several weeks I was in a really bad way, but suddenly suddenly it changed. Suddenly I could sleep, and it was the beginning of something from there, and I was very fortunate that uh, we found a, a, a treatment, um, you know, uh, a mood stabiliser, an antidepressant that works incredibly well for me. And so uh, that was my introduction to bipolar was through a, um, you know, a very, very almost tragic event. And as I talked to many, many people, it was very common for the people I met in hospital. I met so many people in hospital. Um, and the program that I was on uh, was incredibly helpful. I remember going to uh, cognitive behaviour therapy sessions for depression and anxiety and having a professor come to talk to us who had lost uh, a whole part of his brain from, um, from a stroke. And um, he, he sort of taught himself again, and that's when we realised how plastic the brain is, how amazing the brain is. And I was sort of saying, I was a bit, bit down and said, oh, I've got bipolar disorder, you know. And he, he, he immediately said to me, he said, Wow, I said some of my best friends are bipolar, and you're a university lecturer. You could be a great scientist. <laughs> and that just that just really struck with me. But without without Janelle every day saying that I was going to get better and that she believed it would, it would be possible, I, I don't think I could have done it. You know, so you know it's been a team effort. But from there, it's a it's, it was a gradual step back. Um, but you know, I've realised how amazing the brain can be. And I, I try and think of my bipolar disorder. Um, and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder type 2, which is where you display hypermania, uh, which is just more frenetic activity, racing thoughts, um, lots of ideas going through your mind, lots of creativity. And um, 
just a couple of years ago, I actually had, um, you know, some more life stresses and a more bipolar type one disorder where I had the full full on sort of mania uh, that's normally associated uh, with the disease. So, yeah, I've been, I I was well for 15 years. That's given me another perspective. I now know what it's like to go too high. Um, I know what it's like to go too low. And it's just some careful management. But but I would say that I I couldn't be the researcher or the person or the teacher I am without the insight that bipolar gives me. I'm more of an intuitive researcher. As I said, I'm not not so good at that sort of uh, dogmatic um, step-by-step process. But I love to come up with the ideas and I love to design the trials and then and then write it up as well. So, yeah, I, I, it, it, it is who I am. Uh, it doesn't consume me entirely. But, um, but Janelle and I, it's a partnership that we have to, um, to A, avoid some of the stresses that, that I know will, will trigger and, yeah, to keep going. Um, and, you know, if I look back on what's happened, oh, my God, I... I am just so thankful every day that I'm here experiencing this life on a day-by-day basis and all the amazing things that have happened to me over the last, so it was 2004 when I had that episode. So, you know, we're now going on a number of years and uh, the amazing career that I've had, the great students I've had, uh, the people that I've come across, the great researchers that have given me advice. And all of that would have gone without um, without me, you know, so being 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 so fortunate in being able to, to make that decision on the side. But I can really understand um, depression. Depression kills, you know. Ten uh, percent uh, of, of people that are depressed will take their own life. Many more will attempt it. If we can somehow just get to people before that stage, or people can feel that they can get out, hopefully we can prevent, um, you know, more things from happening. And if in speaking out, people can say, well, look at what's happened to me over those 15 years, that it's not the end of the world and that there's so much understanding and empathy and support out there. But, you know, that's, that's, that's the legacy that I have after the experience that we've got, that we try to uh, impart to students, that we try to work together. Wow. It's so fortunate that, that you did get to that point, that you were able to reach out and um, say that you, that you needed help. And that's, yeah, something that, that I've often wondered about is what makes that difference and thinking about some of the, the friends that, that I've lost to, to suicide and the, the depth of the despair that, that they must have felt at the time. And, you know, it's hard not to, not to think about these things, I suppose, what could have been different that could have given them access to to that support or um or led them to to seek it not to not to put any of the blame on them but gosh it feels like we've got a lot to learn in that respect we like to um talk to the students and and just encourage them and say you know we're just fellow travelers on the journey of life and that we're just there to support them as well so um, obviously we're much older than them we've been through university and some of their stressors that they face and we just um, meet with them and you know just chat with them and and encourage them and talk about how they feel and refer them on if we feel that it's out of our ability to help them any further. But generally the students enjoy just knowing that they can come and talk to us and it's confidential what what's said in our office stays in our office as far as their personal life. Yeah, I think that's so important, that steady presence of support just knowing that that there is somebody like the the both of you just who are there and who will continue to be there for our students in particular who have to go through so many changes and and stresses it's um huge huge thing so they're very lucky to have you i think you've done an amazing and and the listeners probably wouldn't know but uh but uh darren and janelle have established a uh support network for for students veterinary students to help them with mental health challenges that's my understanding is that the case darren janelle yeah it's very much in its infancy i mean 
each university um, and vet schools, you know, doing quite a bit in this area. But yeah, yeah, we we've just sort of uh, there's a, a group of us that have started something in a very small way that we hope will will extend out further. And you know, it's just the next, another evolution in just like you said, Cam, um, talking about the subject so that you know you're you're very fearful when when these suicidal thoughts come into your mind. You they scare you to to death, you know, uh, and it's very hard to to reach out and tell people. You're also scared about what it might mean for your, your job, your relationships, all of those things. But if we just recognize that it is clinical sign, it's not a be all and end all, it's a clinical sign of depression. And it's that it's that absolute, um, you know, worst case scenario, clinical sign. And, um, you know, if we all be, I think what we're seeing is, is at all levels in society, um, people now more willing to talk about these things rather than, than say, oh, you know, that's a taboo subject. And I think the more we talk, uh, the more we're going to realise that people say, hey, this is happening to me um, and I don't need to follow what, what is going on in my mind um, and I can, you know, and I need to do something about it. And then if we have the support networks there, then that's really great. Like you said, Cam, we all, we all say, could I have done something different? And we all blame ourselves when these things happen. And, and you know, the pain that you're going through as, as the sufferer, you, you just want it to stop. So, um, you know, I, I think as a profession, we're, we're really going to take this on as, as, a, as a big challenge. It's happening uh, right the way through now. And, uh, and I think our students are very uh, aware of that as they come to the course now too. So, yeah, I just hope that we'll, we'll, we won't sort of dwell on it as, as, a, as the only issue that, that is there because there's so many issues uh, about being a vet we need to provide support networks for but that we, we just make sure that our profession, you know, knows that, that it doesn't mean the end of the world to reach out for help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I sort of, uh, you've obviously created a space yourself, Darren and Janelle and, and Cam with, uh, with Flynn's Walk and Flynn's Talk, done amazing work in creating these spaces where people can bring their deep thoughts that are like they're scary as crap. I'm sure they are like sort of, and look, I'm sorry, I'm not going to lie. I, I don't, I've never experienced suicidal thoughts. I, I sort of, and, and I've not really ever been depressed. Anxiety, yes, but not depression or anything. But I feel like you're creating these spaces where people can bring those really deep thoughts, not feel judged and actually feel like they're going to be heard and listened to. And that's just such a vital thing. And and not even kind of, I feel like not even trying to fix it in a way, just actually giving them a space to bring those thoughts out and actually express those thoughts and share them. That's basically what we do for the students, just like one-on-one. But then we've also uh, realised that we need to have some speakers come in, whether they're uh, alumni or, you know, some other psychologist come in, in mental health issues and just talk to the students and then have like a, a bit of a lunchtime get together and, and provide lunch for the students. So just to encourage them and that that's our main aim is just to be there for the students and whatever we can provide and help, you know, that's that's what we're planning to do. Yeah. And and I think there are some amazing people doing some amazing things in this in this space, and it, it all feels like it's coming together. So that's that can only be a good thing. Yeah, just having that space to share and not contribute to it, because by not having that space, I think so many of these things are such a heavy thing to carry. But then by not having a space, you're really just heaping shame on top of it too, and and making it even even more heavy. So just being able to lighten the the burden in those ways is is so critical i think and and all the training we can get you know like i said at the start the brain is an amazingly plastic organ i think i was told once that i may have some brain damage after what happened to me and that scared me after i'd made some recovery that scared me a lot and you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with my brain, you know, compared with what I've done since that time and reading about all the things we can do to support our, our brain health in terms of what we eat, 
how we exercise, how we relate to each other, how we relax and unwind, you know, we're only, we're uncover, we're sort of starting to uncover the amazing secret within our brain with a very cross-disciplinary approach, you know, uh, not just looking at neurophysiology, but, you know, psychology and the whole thing together. Yeah. So I, I see some amazing improvements with this and through that, you know, just better and better drugs because, you know, the drugs to control many mental illnesses do have, you know, a number of side effects. I'm just very fortunate that I take the lowest dose. Janelle usually rates me on a a bipolar scale of one to 10, this is on, on mania, since I've had that, that really bad manic episode a couple of years ago. And I like to be about a one or two because that's the area where I, I feel I'm, I'm functioning at my best capability. I definitely don't like being in the negatives because I can't string two words together <laughs> and, uh, and that's there. The negative is depression yes. and then uh, zero and above is mania. So yes. a couple of weeks ago, he was I rated him about six and a half. So yes. he was heading up there. <laughs> so hence, action was <laughs> yeah, just um, you know issues that had happened and that caused the mania, and then so we just needed to take a couple of weeks off just to try to have more of a positive sort of life to then go back to uni and and be able to help the students again. It's a really great example to set for the students too, being able and, and willing to take that time out. So what sort of what sort of supports do you find most meaningful for you? Obviously you have an incredible support in in Janelle and taking time out. What sort of things work best for you? Yeah, it's a multifaceted question and, and response. And it, it's what it's what we often talk about with students because everybody has their sweet spot, you know, something that, that you can do that takes you, and both you and, and Kate would be thinking now, something that takes you completely away and you can immerse yourself in it mm. and it really works. And uh, and definitely for us, it, for me, it's, it's having to do the manual labor that I'm not good at, you know, like in terms of the house building that Janelle is brilliant at, because I, I like my fingers. I have to concentrate when I'm using a drop saw <laughs> to not lose my fingers. So that, oh, that yeah. makes me very mindful and takes me out of the, the zone in my head where, where, where you often find yourself when you're uh, at the extremes of mental illness, either depression or we call it mindfulness, but, but that is really mindfulness because I, I don't want to lose my fingers. <laughs> I, I think that I think that every time I encounter a chihuahua, actually, <laughs> I really like my fingers. I must admit, when he was at six and a half, I wouldn't let him use the mulcher that we've got. I said, oh, oh that's probably a really bad idea. I think we'll just keep away from that one for today. Dropped <laughs> down a few levels. Uh, yeah, I was, I was allowed on the mulcher again. Um, <laughs> Once you got down yeah. to about three. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've talked about it. You know, um, every year at, at Roseworthy, we have the student staff review. Um, it goes back to the Murdoch days when, probably because I was a very serious student back then, I, you know, I just had lost my parents. And so the sort of fun activities and, and hell-raising activities that students used to get up to, you know, back, back in our days, um, Kate, because um, you, you're, you're yeah. of the same bit pictures. <laughs> As, oh, yeah. as, as me, but you know, I didn't partake in much of those activities. So, you know, I, I'm doing a little bit of that now, and we always like to dress up and sing songs. One of the great outlets for me, particularly at this time of the year when things get really busy, is to um, change the lyrics to songs. And my wonderful colleagues in our department, you know, put up with me and uh, and help help us sing these songs together. We, uh, we have an ABBA tribute band, we've done Village People, we've done Queen, and we just love to change the lyrics and make the songs very much about the veterinary experience or about uh, life at Roseworthy, you know, in a really fun, positive way. You know, we don't try to make it a very, very negative in, in those areas. And I find writing those songs really takes out a lot of that because, yeah, mania is just full-on overblown creativity. You just have 101 ideas that, that all seem really good at the time but but become completely unsustainable the longer and longer it goes and the more and more you get off into what you'd probably call delusions rather than actually things that are bedded in reality. So, um, 
Yeah. And now that I've experienced what that feels like, it was very, very nice for me, but it was horrible for everybody else, including Janelle. So, you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that that maybe as I get older, maybe as I've where I found diet to be so important for the neurotransmitter precursors and that sort of thing, that I have to watch out the older I get, the more prone I am, not so much to depression, but to, to manic episodes. So yeah, that creative, having a creative outlet, but also to, to be squashed by medication and to not have any creativity as a bipolar person is really tough. So that, that's why trying to have all these outlets, but trying to keep my medication to the minimum that, that controls the time. For the listeners, we will put up, well, actually, with Darren's permission, we'll put up lyric substitutions for Bohemian Rhapsody, which is Dalmatian Rhapsody, which I, I, I loved. Kate, I'll even sing a few bars of it for you. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh go for it. No, no, go. Go. You're going to sing it now? Is this a dog's life or is it fantasy? I feel delusional. No escape from this DIC. Open my eyes and check my conjunctiva. I'm just a poor dog. I need your sympathy because I'm close to death. Touch and go. Temp is high blood pressure's low. Which drug you will use now really, really matters to me. To me. Doctor, I'm in your hands. Put a catheter in my vein. Pump some fluids. Treat my pain. Doctor, my infection's just begun. But now you're going to nuke it. Pardon early to my owner who didn't mean to make you cry. If I'm not back again this time tomorrow, carry on, carry on, and maybe buy a pussycat. <laughs> like, the, like the one in the background, brilliant. I think that it's it's absolutely brilliant. Very much looking forward to coming over for a vet review to see the Abba Tribute Band. Oh, Dar- yes. Darren You'd be most welcome. Sent, yeah, Darren has sent us this amazing photo of him done up in drag as Agnetha, I think, for, with a long red-haired wig. It's just, it's awesome. But I feel like there's been a lot of practices gone into that makeup there, Darren. <laughs> that was uh, makeup done by a, by a wonderful former student of ours who was just amazing, you know, with drag makeup. So, uh, yeah, he's um, uh, just incredible and, and really lived review as well so yeah that was um you know we'll do the makeup this year um it won't be as good as uh, as the, the the first rendition but we'll do the very best we can and yeah it's our stress release it's our chance to laugh and the students yeah, really love it so we've got a whole new set of songs for this year yeah we're doing village people and um abba so it should be good. Absolutely adorable. And I feel like it's really important when you do have sort of uh, situations and society is not always, doesn't always deal with people with neurodiverse or racial diversity or whatever. It does feel like you're facing adversity all the time. I do find it really important to, in sort of from my experience, to really grab a hold of those euphoric moments in a way, not quite the mania, but more the euphoria, the the really sort of the enjoyable moments, the fun moments. And and remember, like you said, Darren, before, life is kind of crazy and beautiful and weird and wonderful. You're absolutely right. You hit it on the on the head there, Kate, that, you know, we really don't know what's going to happen every day we we wake up. And I'm just so thankful for every day. I and but I'm also thankful for, for humor. You know, our our department lives on the camaraderie we have, the the jokes we we make with each other, just to have that level of support and level of not taking life too seriously, but being there when serious situations happen. So it's not it's not being flippant at all about life, but it's it's laughing in the face of adversity, which which you know the human race has sort of survived uh, like that for thousands of years. Uh, and will help us meet the challenges that, that come our way. Talking about what it means to have an invisible illness, I too sort of experience a bit of an invisible illness in that I suffer from chronic migraines mm. and I've always found it a very difficult thing to to communicate to other people what the experience is like, why I might just seem a little bit off or, or not all there. And yeah, it's it's hard to get across to people who who haven't experienced it or or haven't experienced another invisible illness. So what's what's your experience been like with that, with relating to other people? Oh yes. So your your migraine would have trigger factors, I imagine, Cam, and to to avoid those, to take medication early. You know, I, I don't think there's a lot of 
differences. It just happens that, that the, call it a lesion, call it a diverse phenotype, call it a, an over-exuberance or an under-exuberance of, of dopamine, noradrenaline, serotonin, whatever's going on in there with bipolar affects my emotions, but more importantly, my my brain processing. And, you know, it's not like I go to everybody I've introduced and say, hi, I'm Darren, I'm bipolar. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not something that we, we need to actively do. Um, but for me, it's it's very important that that Janelle, that my friends and family, my my wonderful doctor, that people can read me and are aware when action needs to be taken. So for me, I don't I don't look upon this as having an invisible illness per se. Mm-hmm. It's just a very very bright light that often needs some shading. Mm-hmm. And the older I get, I'm I'm learning how to apply that shading. But if it snuffs out, that's the situation that me personally, I for bipolar people, we can't be in that depressed state. It's the worst thing. It's it's um it's it's awful. Janelle said she went, would much rather deal with me in a in a depressed state than in a manic state. <laughs> yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily say my the the illness of bipolar disorder is invisible because unfortunately, you know, when people find out I'm bipolar, they say, oh that. That fits a lot, <laughs> but also I, I don't really think of it much as a stigma. I've just found that that my colleagues and friends treat me as who I am, and they they love my eccentricities. That, that they know when to give me a slap on the face and say, <laughs> "Calm down," or <laughs> or do that. Yeah, but I suppose to have an illness that's inside your mind, that's inside your your being, there can be a tendency to get yourself lost in your own thoughts rather than deal with the outside. I think that's probably the the biggest issue for me is that people know when I'm lost in my own thoughts rather than actually taking in information and and relaying that out. So yeah, I wouldn't call it an invisible illness, but I call it something that because it affects my emotions, my interactions, uh, the speed of my of my, 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 my neurotransmitters and things. People really don't like to handle you in the extremes. So the whole idea is if I'm here, it's great. One or two pegs up is even better for me. <laughs> yeah. How do you go explaining migraines to people, Cam? Hearing Darren say people go, oh, that explains a bit. In a way, probably, and sort of look, we, we kind of know each other. We've gotten to know each other better, I think, Cam, lately. But the migraines kind of actually does explain some things as well, like knowing that more. It, it's sort of like, ah, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, got that, yep. Like I, I love the the light on, light out shades analogies there, Darren. I thought that was, for, for me, that helped me really understand that a lot more sort of thing, like the bright light blinding you versus shaded versus you don't want the light snuffed out. Have you got any sort of, have you have any way that you explain stuff to people, Karen? I definitely get the same sorts of reactions a lot of the time of people saying, oh, yeah, okay, and then thinking back of previous interactions that they had with me and that they thought I was just a bit distant or not really interested in a conversation, and then they'll say, so were you having a headache or a migraine, you know, two weeks ago? And I say, oh, well, actually, yeah, I did have one that afternoon. So it, it does colour some interactions that I, I might have with people. I suppose it's a, sometimes a bit of a frustrating thing to describe to people. And it's something that I've shared with other people who experience chronic migraines in that people will try to think think about it as something that they've experienced. So when I describe the the migraine that I have, people might say, oh yeah, I get headaches too. And oh, it's not, it's not really the same. (laughs) Not even close. Um, (laughs) Not even close. Yeah. It's Mm. not, it's not the distortions in, in light and sound and Mm. time and space and the pressure in every direction it's very very hard to there's sort of some little analogies that i try to describe it with like deafening silence but not really it's just such a a weird thing going on in my head that it's i really struggle to to verbalize it with people people 
people try to to understand which is lovely but it certainly does yeah it affects some of the interactions i have with people and and those who have known me long enough to to know um a bit more about it understand and and have learned to recognize when it's when it's happening sometimes even before i really understand as well which is actually helpful sometimes so that i can take some medication to hopefully slow things down yeah i found in your description there the analogy of distortion of time and space one that I was probably more able to get my head to come to grips with. I've got no idea of what a migraine is like. I don't get migraines. So it's hard as occasionally, but I, it's just not something that, that I experience. And, and I totally get, I do totally get where you're coming from in terms of trying to explain something that you personally experience to someone who clearly does not experience that. It's, it's mm. like, what does it feel like to be trans? Well, it's just like, yeah. it's just me. Like, I've got no fucking idea. Like, what does it feel like to be cis? <laughs> sort of, it's, um, it just, it kind of doesn't, you can describe lots of things and you can use lots of words and analogies, but it's, it is the essence of the feelings is very hard to to really get across to someone who hasn't experienced it. And I think part of the reason why you mentioned there, Cam, you connect like sort of describing it to other people who do have migraines, like it's you sort of get that connection. I'm assuming, Darren, that it would be similar with, with the bipolar thing, like that other people who have experienced bipolar, there's almost a semi-instant connection. You just, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, shit, yeah, <laughs> you know. I guess I guess some people don't understand and that's okay because if you haven't been through it then it is hard to understand what someone is going through but I think it's just having empathy and just being there to help or just be there for someone in whatever the situation is seriously my god you remind me of Tara Janelle <laughs> Shall we do the final question? Yeah, let's let's yep. do the final question because I'd like to explore this actually a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Our final question. If you could take a pill that would mean that you had never received your diagnosis, but which also meant that all of the experiences you'd had associated with your diagnosis of bipolar and all the people that you had met as a result would disappear from your life along with your diagnosis. Would you take the pill? Yeah, this is a question that Janelle and I have discussed and talked about. I mean, it's got a number of different ways in which it can be interpreted. The way I, and I can answer it in, in a couple of ways, but the way that I would interpret it is if I could say at that time when diagnosis finally came, take a pill that would fix it forever. I mean, we do know that in many areas of, of medicine, psychiatry, you know, the whole, the whole lot, um, we can provide a permanent solution for uh, an ailment, call it, call it ailment, call it neurodiversity, neuroplasticity. There's a couple of very recent articles come out about creativity and predisposition. Uh, you can sort of see how bipolar genes may have been selected in populations. You know, if we go back, you know, we, we don't quite know the exact array of genes, but there's, there's a, it, it's multifactorial and we're, we're getting closer and closer all the time. We know the lesions or overactivity, I probably call them overactivity, which has probably got some analogies to, to migraines as well. It just is in the region of the brain. That, that it happens. And I'm thinking back, so that's 2004 and all the amazing things that, that we've experienced there. Since having my manic episode as well, just a couple of years ago, I've become a lot more of a spiritual person. I'm, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm a, I'm a hardcore evidence-based scientist, but there's mysteries to life that we really don't understand that just make life, you know, living. And if I look back and say, could I switch that off at that stage? and not have the experiences, the good and the bad that, that have happened since then, I'd probably choose to keep the bipolar. It is who I am. I love being creative. I love people. I love working with students. Now that I'm over a lot of my self-esteem problems as a researcher, I love working with other researchers that I used to feel so inadequate again. I, I, I think I would... I would sort of choose the neurodiversity. I hope one day that, that being a scientist and, and trying to relate what we learn about the brain with the experiences that I have, that we may be able to be close to unlocking 
the keys to, let's face it, the challenges facing humanity. We need really, really good thinkers going forward. And, and I, see, I see our brains evolving as we become more digital, you know, all these areas. We see a lot more supposed issues, but are they just phenotypes being expressed under, under selection pressure? So I'd like to leave that in the, in the sphere of the unknown. For me personally, I don't think I would take the pill. It might mean less issues for Janelle. I don't know. I'd probably even ask Janelle, would she want me to take the pill yeah. or as I am? Yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't want him to take the pill. I think that what we've gone through just makes you a stronger person and also enables you to help others in, in how they feel as well. So definitely no and life experiences are, are very valuable to help others. Yeah, so that's a that's a a no no, a hundred percent from Janelle and I that we're going to take we're going to take bipolar warts and all for the rest of our lives and go from there. I'd actually like to because we've like both Kevin and I have obviously answered this question in different ways before, sort of with other guests, but I'd actually like to flip this one around with regards to relationships. And I'm going to talk about sort of my relationship with Tara, because I think that when you talk about this, it is sort of uh, when you talk about various levels of diversity and how you sort of face diversity and, and sort of when that diversity impacts, it often impacts people who are close to you, loved ones and whatever as well. And I think that I would be, certainly I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the pill for, you know, if I could take a pill that meant I was cis and no, I wouldn't take the pill. I am who I am and, and I totally like who I am. I think that whilst these types of, whilst sort of diversity and the challenges that that sort of diversity, be that neurodiversity, be that sort of uh, gender diversity, uh, or racial diversity, sort of hopefully we'll get to talk to Cameron in a second when I shut up, there's challenges involved. But I do think that I've, I get the feeling that Janelle and Darren, that you feel like that those facing those challenges together has in a way strengthened and made your got that relationship and also added on to it. Like there was obviously a, a base relationship there. Like, the, you know, there's something there to start with. And, and I think though that when you have to face these challenges together, there's a connection that you develop. And don't think I would have to ask Tara, I, I can convince her to come on the veterinary kaleidoscope, but she will be asked the question. <laughs> but, um, but I don't think Tara would actually have it any other way so to speak, either. Like, Cam, I sort of, uh, and you've sort of had to explore elements of your racial diversity, being a Palawa man and, and and in your family. And would you have rather grown up not being Palawa, not having those connections to your, uh, your relatives, those relationships with people who are also a part of that Aboriginal community? Or how do you feel about that? I certainly am thankful for for my ancestry and the way that I grew up, I suppose, if anything, I wish that I could have had more connections to my ancestry. Being Tasmanian Aboriginal, a lot of documentation, um, a lot of culture is lost. Language is lost. So probably the only thing that I really yearn for is is that. And it's it's a harder harder thing to to be immersed in now, having not really grown up in it. Indigenous culture, in particular, I think, is a harder thing to pick up later in life. And there's Palawakani, the sort of recreation of an amalgamation of different Tasmanian Aboriginal languages being put together, but it's not particularly widely used and it's it's quite strongly protected as well. So yeah, if anything, I, I guess I, I wish that, that I could have lived in a world where I could have been more a part of it, um, particularly having contacts with people in Arnhem Land, people in the Torres Strait Islands and people who I've come to know as family and and their children growing up really immersed in their in their own culture. I see what a wonderful upbringing that can be. But I'm very fortunate that I do have those connections now. So I still get to enjoy that part of the culture. So I'm, I'm really lucky to, to have that as well. Yeah, it's, it's all about connections. Mm. It's kind of all, all about connections. And 
relationships and connecting with others, isn't it? And mutual respect as well. I think that's the most important thing. You know, um, we have so much to learn from each other. And when we reach out and we suddenly realise, oh, my God, this is brilliant. Why didn't we think of this earlier? <laughs> I absolutely completely feel honoured, Janelle, and thank you so much for your participation. It's been amazing and fantastic having your participation in here. And I think, and again, it's all about the connections. And the connection that you and Darren have is just it's also, it's it's visible, like listeners won't see, we do this via Zoom, so we actually do get to see each other's faces and our interactions. And the way that Darren and Janelle actually look at each other, like it's two people <laughs> that have been in love for 35 years and are clearly still in love. It's sort of, uh, you know, it's it's... Um, it's absolutely beautiful to see. One last bit of advice I try to give to the students is to find your soulmate, you know, and we continue to be amazed by each other, I think. And, you know, we we still have many journeys left to go. And as we transition from university teachers and researchers to bed and breakfast owners, we'll, we'll be in another another phase. Yeah, so that's exciting. we're looking forward to what happens there. And But you, you hit it, connections and we both thank uh, the two of you for, for reaching out to us in this particular podcast. And I think what you guys uh, are doing is is amazing. We both felt very natural, uninhibited. We, we felt a connection with you without even meeting both of you. And we, we hope to meet you in properly in the future. Well, that would be fantastic for us, uh, having having started this journey with you now and, and how we can how we can help you fulfill you know your dreams with with what you're doing with this podcast because uh, I think it's it's what we need in the profession and it's fantastic thank you so much I'm blushing now so <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you I think that's probably where we probably should wrap it up Cam what do you think yeah I think we've done well all right so thank you again everyone for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this episode we look forward to to you joining us on our next episode which will be probably about another month or so and thank you again Darren and Janelle has been absolutely amazing and we will say goodbye to our listeners bye bye, bye.